Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm Oliver Wiseman, host of Free Exchange and editor of CapEx. Something has gone badly wrong in the economies of the Western world. Competition, supposedly the beating heart of the capitalist system, just isn't working in the way it's supposed to. Big companies keep getting bigger and hogging a bigger share of the market, while consumers and small businesses lose out. That is the argument made by Jonathan Tepper in his new book, The Myth of Capitalism. For this week's episode of Free Exchange, Jonathan spoke to my colleague, John Ashmore, about whether or not capitalism is broken, and, if it is, how it might be fixed. So, uh, Jonathan, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. Um, Your book, The Myth of Capitalism, I've read it recently, uh, enjoyed it hugely. Just, could you just set out what you mean by the myth of capitalism? Uh, certainly. So I think that capitalism broadly has two components. One is essentially private property. Marxists uh, define themselves essentially in opposition to private property. And after the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, the Iron Curtain, essentially in 1989, uh, arguably the battle for private property was won. And even if you look at supposedly communist countries like China, that you know, Generally, private property has been introduced, and we're actually seeing that in, in North Korea. So, that uh, you know, the, the victory is total. You could argue on that front. The other key element, essentially, is competition. And the reason that competition matters is that in order to get uh, the, the right amount of supply and demand, you have to have you know prices move freely, which is what happens in a competitive market. And the the book points out that the capitalism that people dislike today and that most people complain about, essentially is what Stiglitz calls ersatz capitalism, or essentially it sort of uh, gives the appearance of being capitalism without being capitalist. And I argue in the book that the lack of competition, essentially, in the current form of capitalism is not true capitalism, and therefore sort of it's a myth to talk about the current system as being genuinely capitalist if we have... Uh, monopolies and oligopolies that uh, reduce competition and you know reduce consumer choice and don't give us clear price signals. Yeah, and there's some really astounding stats in in the book. Um, I didn't know, for example, that 90% of beer in America is made by just two companies, or if you're buying insurance, it's almost certainly going to be a duopoly or an oligopoly in your home state. I mean, how did this? come into existence? Do you think it's a specifically American problem? So the the problem is not restricted to the United States. Uh, The U.S., I think, in terms of uh, developed countries, 
uh, certainly has gone the, the farthest in terms of uh, concentrating industries. And so people talk about industrial concentration, essentially, which is sort of how few players you have in an industry and how high market share there might be. Um, I think that the, so the, the book, uh, I think it had, I had more time and I was trying to get this out soon because I thought that it's an important subject that needed to be out. Um, but, you know, I would have internationalized the book a lot more, but I think the U.S. even so is critical to the discussion because the, the U.S. really does lead the world, you know, for, for better or, or for ill uh, in, in terms of, uh, one, the U.S. created antitrust law, right, um, and exported that to the rest of the world. And then what you're describing right now in terms of is the, the U.S. the worst, uh, the U.S. essentially also has exported the uh, counter-revolution in antitrust, which started with uh, Robert Bork and the Chicago School. And so uh, really the U.S. in a way is, is much more advanced on, on that front of consolidation because, you know, we can go into sort of how and why and what the ideology is behind that if you want. Yeah, and it's interesting because I mean, if you listen to, for example, uh, left-wing politicians and commentators, um, we hear the word progressive banded around quite a lot, but that originally in the United States, the progressive movement was about ensuring competition rather than redistributing income. Uh, absolutely. So the, the progressive movement in the late 19th century in the United States and early 20th century had various strands, so it wasn't a, a uniform movement. Some of them were, were social goals, you know, very similar to, to in the UK, and, and a lot of the reforms that happened in, in Britain in the late 19th century were, in fact, conservative reforms, if you look at Disraeli and others. So these weren't necessarily left-right issues. These were essentially sort of, you know, making sure that kids weren't working and, you know, uh, sort of people weren't being poisoned and those kinds of things. But on the industrial side, uh, progressives were very much about ensuring competition. And at the time, you had, uh, particularly in the United States, you know, given how big it is and was, um, you had sort of huge companies that were turning themselves into trusts. So you had Standard Oil, you had the railways, and then you had uh, key figures like uh, J.P. Morgan, where you might ha have what appeared to be independent railroads, but in fact were all owned by the same person. And then this just sort of continue continued where you had, uh, you know, tobacco and sugar companies, which controlled 95, 96% of uh, the entire market in the U.S. through a, a series of mergers. And I was, one of the things I was quite struck by reading the book is the number of times you mentioned fraud and corruption and, if not overt corruption, what effectively amounts to, to legalised corruption. I mean, is that... How much of this problem do you think is simply people breaking the law? So I think that uh, so when we talk about um, monopolies, you could distinguish between, let's say, natural monopolies and, and what I argue are unnatural monopolies. So there are certain things, for example, like uh, a, a water utility system, right? It just does not make sense to have two sets of pipes going to everyone's homes, right? So we just accept that these are natural monopolies. And to make sure that no one's gouged, you know, for the water so that way you're not sort of dying of thirst, you know, being charged a 1,000 pounds, um, that these have a, essentially a regulated rate of return. There, there are also some things that, are, uh, that have natural monopoly-type characteristics, and those might be, for example, a payment system like Visa, you know, when you take out your card. You know, you want to make sure that all the sellers and all the buyers are on the same network, and so economists call these network effects. The, the real problem in terms of corruption, which your question uh, uh, sort of gets to the heart of, is that there are just actually a lot of businesses that don't have any natural monopolies, right? And so there's no reason why one or two companies should completely dominate the industry. And so the question, of course, is, well, how do they do it? And the, the book argues that the... Uh, 
re regulation itself is often over-regulation, often uh, very significant legal barriers to entry are created where these, these are essentially unnatural monopolies, um, but you know, new entrants are, are either prohibited from entering or the regulatory burden is very high. And so I think that that's what leads to corruption, which is that as economic power gets concentrated, um, it, it, the economic power is then used essentially um, to essentially capture regulators, um, which often happens, or to corrupt the political process via lobbying. Do you think, that, I mean, it strikes me that this is not something that the majority, that is really a big part of the American political conversation at the moment, or maybe not to the extent that it should be, given... I mean, you, in the book you talk about there being a toll road, like every American consumer, almost every transaction they have is kind of taxed in a way because of monopolies and oligopolies, um, particularly healthcare, that one's really striking, especially if you grew up in a European-style system. Um, do you think that there is, you know, that conversation will start to be had, that will change in the next presidential campaign, for example? Uh, uh, very much. So I think that the the reception that this book has had, and it's only been out for a couple of weeks, uh, has been extraordinary. You know, one, I was uh, surprised that, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a very famous or well-known writer, but the endorsements that came in were uh, humbling and overwhelming. So, you know, uh, two Nobel Prize winners and economists like Kenneth Rogoff. So the economic establishment clearly liked the message. And then uh, when, I, when this has now gone out and, and politicians are starting to read it, um, it's been extraordinary to see that they've been getting in touch with me even in this brief period. Um, and if you look at D.C. and, you know, the sort of legislat legislative assistance and people working on these issues on the Hill, I think there's quite a lot of desire for change. And uh, from people I speak to in terms of uh, political campaigns, uh, I, they, they tell me that this is going to be one of the big issues of 2020. Uh, I think things have gone uh, too far, uh, you know, recently with uh, lots of mega mergers that have gone through. And so now what we're going to see, I think, is that the pendulum's gone so far one direction, the political move is in the other. Do you think it's quite a difficult argument to make for... There's a tension there for, say, free marketeers and classical liberals in that you want the market to work well, but you're, part of your proposed solution is the state getting more involved when it's the state itself that's helped cause the problem in the first place? Do you think there's a tension, almost a paradox there? Uh, yeah, so I think the, uh, the left and the right is going to like and hate different parts of the book, without a doubt. Um, I think that the, the left will probably like the uh, sort of, you know, break them up angle, you know, in terms of monopolies, um, and they're going to hate the uh, regulation uh, angle where I, I talk about. Um, the, the right is going to hate the sort of break them up because, uh, unfortunately, I think parts of the right in the United States have basically been convinced that big business equals capitalism, which I don't think is the case. Um, but they, and they'll, they'll love the sort of deregulation side. I, I argue in the book that what we don't need is necessarily more regulators or even stronger regulators. Um, the, the inherent problem that we have in, in the United States, and not just a, an American phenomenon, but uh, regulatory capture happens when uh, very powerful companies are are able to influence uh, their regulators. And so um, if you look even back in the 19th century, for example, when they wanted to regulate railroads, the, the railroads at first opposed it, but then they realized quite quickly that if they got very friendly with the Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, that they could then use it to their own advantage. And if you look at what's, what goes on now in terms of a re revolving door between the FCC or the you know, Federal Communications Commission 
and um, Comcast and others, or you look at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, which essentially has to either sign off or not on, on mergers. And in theory, they're tasked with looking after the, the broad societal and consumer welfare. Um, really what they're doing is uh, essentially functioning as a revolving door between uh, Washington law firms and the companies that want to merge. And so I think that uh, one has to be very, very wary of regulatory capture. If you create a very powerful regulator, what you're really doing is creating a potential very powerful ally for the companies that it's meant to regulate. And <clears throat> I point out in the book, one of the analogies that I use is that uh, regulation itself uh, functions uh, like uh, chemotherapy, which sounds very strange, but uh, I'll, I'll explain. Um, regulations can be selectively toxic, you know, meaning they can sort of kill off startups and you know, protect big businesses. And uh, when I started writing this, I thought, you know what, I better stop writing this. I might, I, I should, you know, I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm not a doctor. I don't understand science. So I sent it to one of my best friends who actually is an expert, and he works at the MD Anderson Clinic in Houston. And he, he wrote back something which is absolutely fascinating and actually makes the analogy all the better. He pointed out that uh, essentially... Uh, sort of, you know, you and I, for example, have stopped growing. And so if you're looking, chemotherapy kills healthy cells and cancerous cells alike. But when you stop growing, you know, if, if you go out and, and drink or smoke or eat bad food or subject yourself to UV rays in a very sunny day, your, your body uses all its energy to do cell repair, right? And that's sort of how our bodies take care of themselves. Cancerous cells, on the other hand, uh, have basically just been programmed um, to... To, to grow, and they, they're not really programmed for cell repair. And so um, chemotherapy and, and regulation, what it does is it, it just sort of, you know, bombards in a way uh, companies, you know, <laughs> UV rays or whatever it might be, and uh, the cancerous cells just can't repair themselves, right? And so if you look at uh, the, the research, and I have this in the footnotes of the book, the, the more highly regulated an industry generally, the more concentrated it is. And so the healthcare industry in, in the U.S. and insurance are very highly regulated. It's where you see a very high degree of concentration. The alcohol industry, obviously beer, and, uh, spirits, and wine, are, are much more highly concentrated. And it's un, you, know, you can have two companies with 90% market share in beer, but it's unthinkable to, that you know, Burger King or McDonald's could have a 90% market share in restaurants. You, know, you, you and I could hire a cook and uh, get an oven, you know, and, and on, on we go. But that, so that, that's really, I think, re regulation itself can act as a significant barrier to entry. So the answer is not necessarily more regulation. I thought it was, it's interesting. I think as well in the book, it's, it's a bit of a myth buster also in the sense that I think a lot of Europeans imagine that America is this kind of Wild West, regulation-free, unfettered capitalism, whereas actually what you're describing is a heavily, badly regulated economy in certain sectors. But, it, I mean, is it fair to say, I mean, you mentioned restaurants there. There, must, there are parts of the American economy and the market economy that are working quite well. Yes. So uh, I, I, I hope I made it clear in the book, but I, I certainly wasn't intending to say that every aspect of the U.S. economy is becoming more concentrated. I think the, the danger is that a lot of the key uh, industries are becoming more concentrated where consumers don't really have much of a choice. So, you know, that, that would be uh, sort of, you know, mobiles, fixed lines. It would be uh, healthcare, insurance and things like that. But there, there are quite a lot of other areas of the, of the U.S. economy Unfortunately, it tend to be less critical um, to, to people's daily needs uh, that, are, that are less concentrated. Hmm. And I wonder also what you think about, obviously, as you said, competition is integral to, especially for consumers, getting better prices. Um, is, is there an ideal scenario where these very large companies with enormous economies of scale, 
and resources are facing off against each other in, and really driving costs and services um, in the direction that's good for consumers. Uh, so there, there was a hedge fund manager in New York who used a, a phrase which I, I ended up not uh, putting in the book, but I'll, I'm happy to use in this podcast. Uh, he said that he looks for giants that can kick midgets in the head, um, you know, and uh, he didn't really like it when two giants were fighting against each other. And so you, you could argue that um, areas, for example, like uh, sort of grocery retailing, and it, it, they appear very competitive, often what happens is you end up with one or two grocers in a region that sort of control that, and then they face off essentially against, um, for example, like the meat packing companies, where in the past the meat packing dist- uh, companies were r- relatively unconcentrated, and now we're down to four in, in the U.S. And so there is a case of two very big companies fighting against each other, essentially driving down prices. You could argue that's good for you and me because we can get cheaper chicken or beef. Mm-hmm. Um, the the danger there, essentially, it, which I point out in the book, is that. While the consumer might benefit in that scenario, which is sort of two giants facing off against each other, what's actually happened is that the um, farmers themselves are the ones who essentially are getting squeezed and subsidizing. So it's a transfer of wealth from the farmer to the producer. And so it's not surprising that over half of the farmers in the U.S. have gone bust over the last 20 years. And it's a it's sort of horrific um, data in, in terms of looking at the uh, sort of meat and chicken farmers. And so... That really is very much, I think, uh, sort of an, an extraction of wealth, you know, in a way, uh, from sort of the, the producer, you know, uh, at the farming level to the company. I, uh, and I think potentially some kind of food security issues there if all the animals are being fed the same feed and, and kept in these kind of horrendous conditions. As well, well. That, that's a, one thing that we touch on in, in the book, not in detail specifically regarding animals, but just much more in terms of uh, competition and, and uh, biodiversity. It's, it's generally a, a horrible thing when you have one or two players who determine that every potato in the U.S. is going to be the same size or, mm. or same kind. Uh, you know, Ireland obviously had a potato famine, and believe it or not, in the book I talk about how there are only two companies in the U.S. control um, the intravenous you know, sort of saline solution market. Um, and when they both had their production facilities in Puerto Rico, so when Hurricane Maria hit, uh, the U.S. had shortages of saline solution. And, you know, just sort of imagine that across the whole economy, you know, where you just end up with very little diversity. And that's pretty staggering given that, yeah, saline is just water and salt as a contact lens wearer. Uh, I know. I mean, is that just the result of regulation stopping new people coming in to... Yeah, so obviously people don't want to get bad saline solutions, so there's like a 23-step process that the FDA has if you you and I wanted to set up a plant, very difficult, very expensive, Mm. and so you you have essentially two companies that, you know, have the ability to sort of deal with all that regulation and and get it out. Now, you say in the book that all around the world people have an overwhelming sense that something is broken... And often in political conversation, they think it's because taxes aren't high enough. That's often what you hear, um, I think, particularly of Capital, this book by Thomas Piketty, which was very popular and he called for a wealth tax. But is it fair to say your contention is that taxes is putting the, the cart before the horse a bit? That, that really, when you get proper competition, the need for higher taxes maybe not dissolves, but it's less of an issue. It's a secondary order issue. Uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, every society should decide sort of, you know, how they want to tax people or not. You know, I have my own views about that. Uh, but I think that if if what you have is uh, are, are taxes to deal with these toll roads in your daily life, uh, then what you're really doing is attacking a symptom rather than a cause. And so 
the, the cause of inequality in, in many countries, and certainly in the United States, is that most people don't own shares in these toll roads. And the people who do own shares in the toll roads, essentially it's a, a highly efficient form of regressive taxation. And so, yes, you can tax it and transfer the money from the rich to the poor, but ultimately what would be better is to see competition and to see uh, you know, some of these very high and persistently high profit margins go down. And so that's, that's the, the argument. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And you live in the UK now. I mean, what parallels do you see between the way the British economy works? I mean, which, are there any sectors of the British economy where you see the same things happening, the same sort of under-regulated or poor regulation um, and you know, a similar set of solutions. Yeah, so the, uh, Britain, uh, fortunately, is much better off than the United States in the sense that there are fewer industries that are highly concentrated uh, than the United States. There are industries that are highly concentrated. Some of those tend to be the, the ones that you would expect, which would be sort of like um, fixed line, uh, mobiles, you know, the uh, sort of uh, other utilities, whether it's rail, water, and things like that. Um, these do tend to be slightly better regulated in the sense that the return on assets is often capped. Um, and, uh, you know, you have number portability and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, the, I think the, the, the book is probably more a cautionary tale, you know, for the rest of the w- world. Um, but in parts of Western Europe, we are seeing increases in, in concentration. And the regu- regulation side, I think, is very relevant to the U.K., if you look at what's happened essentially with home building over the last 10 to 15 years, the more highly regulated sector, the more difficult it is for small players um, to enter. And so there's no reason why smaller companies couldn't build homes. But what you've seen essentially is all the big home builders now build you know, close to 80 to 90 percent of, of all homes. And I'm, I'm not sure that this is a good outcome given the housing shortage and you know, for economic vitality. It's interesting. Again, it feels like one of those debates. We talk about housing a great deal and we say, we need to build more. And often it's almost implied that the state should just build houses. But I suppose what you're saying is actually if you, if you delve into it a bit more, it is this over-concentration problem which is at the root of 
what is arguably our biggest economic problem. Uh, very much. I mean, you know, I, I know developers, architects, you know, it's, it's, if you think of the red tape involved of doing anything in building in the UK, you know, it's, it basically means that only someone who can afford to sit around with, you know, uh, a vast staff, you know, could ever deal with. And, and therefore, you just don't have many new entrants. And obviously, the sort of topic du jour is Brexit. I mean, do you have any time for the argument, or an argument quite commonly made by Brexiteers, is that big businesses like the EU because it erects these barriers that you talk about in the book? I mean, do you think that's the case? Well, I, I certainly think it is, and I know that from my own area. So um, I, I do economic research. Our clients are hedge funds and uh, family offices. And if you look at, for example, like AIFMD and MIFID, which sound like horrible acronyms, uh, you know, I mean, they are horrible acronyms, but they're basically rules regarding asset management. And they're clearly written by bureaucrats who don't actually understand asset management. I think that the benefits are relatively dubious, but it imposes a very heavy burden on the asset manager. And it's no surprise that you know what we've seen is a collapse in small funds starting, and the top 100 hedge funds control in Europe control about 90% of the assets. And so you end up with a much more significant concentration because the barrier to entry is relatively high um, you know, due to the administrative and compliance costs. I mean, do you think that's one of the kind of dividends of Brexit that will be f- potentially freed from a lot of this regulation? Uh, so I am not a, a political expert and uh, tried almost not to follow it because it's too depressing. But um, my my understanding is that uh, the UK is still going to be subject to a lot of the the rules mm. um, under the current agreement. So I, I and then there's the issue of passporting and all that. So I'm, I'm not terribly hopeful. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, well, that brings us on to a kind of a kind of closing section, if you like, which is, I mean, there are a number of solutions that you advocate um, at the end of the book, which I think we can broadly categorise as um, antitrust, um, regulation, and then sort of what, what the kind of little man can do. Um, and how, I mean, how optimistic are you that these, that you say capitalism can be fixed? How optimistic are you, given the kind of the swamp, if you like, in Washington, that that... Certainly. So in, in some regards, I'm uh, very cynical and pessimistic, and in others, very hopeful. Uh, I'm, I'm cynical and pessimistic because I'm, I'm realistic, and I realize that if you look at the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, there's a revolving door there. Um, e- the, even the courts themselves have people who are ardently pro-merger. And so I think that it's very difficult to undo years of uh, sort of uh, precedent and ideology. Um, but I'm very, very hopeful because uh, I think that there is genuine desire for change in, in Congress, and I think that the, the voters want change. I went around the U.S. for three and a half weeks on the, the book tour uh, to many cities, and the events were packed out, and the reception, uh, you know, even people just emailing in when they've read excerpts from the book has been extraordinary. So there's definitely a, a desire there. And in terms of what people can do, um, you know, and well, in terms of the reforms, I talk about broadly one is prevent further mergers, two is undo previous mergers that have uh, reduced competition. Uh, I talk about trying to simplify uh, regulation, meaning have principles based regulation. So Dodd Frank, for example, was a law that was 35 pages long and, you know, served banking well for over 70 years, and you had lots, lots of new banks. You then had Dodd-Frank, which is 2,200 pages, and we've had you know, less than half a dozen new banks in the U.S. in a decade, right? So uh, essentially more regulation doesn't mean better outcomes, and I think that's yeah. very relevant for the U.K. And then what the average consumer can do is, you know, where you do have a choice, you know, uh, go with um, new entrants, go with the Davids versus the Goliaths, 
and you know they're wherever you can you know try to make sure that you're not sending your money to the rubber baron via their toll road <laughs> do you think another thing that i just that i found a bit shocking in the book um just to finish on in your own uh, sort of profession if you like in, among economists was how many are willing to just kind of shill for companies and write reports that are sponsored by google or whatever and and some of these guys have made enormous amounts of money from this i mean do you think there's a case for the economics profession to kind of name and shame the, the charlatans? or uh, Maybe not charlatans, they are economists, but, you know. Uh, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm doing that in an upcoming piece for the American Conservative. Uh, they asked me to write a piece, and uh, I, it's about the revolving door. If, uh, you know, I, I could mention dozens of names right now, but ba- basically, yes, I think there's uh, a, a huge problem where, you know, Economics is not a science. Uh, there's, you know, some rigorous methods. Uh, there's just a, the, pro- the problem with mergers is there's just a lot of assumptions. You know, it's regarding future events. We don't know all sorts of things. And if a company's paying you to write a report to say that the merger is good, I can guarantee you which side you're going to come down on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the the shocking thing is that some of these companies, like uh, Charles Rivers Associates or Compass Lexicon, often work for both sides, meaning that. You know, who, whichever side is paying for the research ends up with the right economic, uh, so the right quote unquote economic analysis, and that, that I think devalues uh, economics and makes it much more like prostitution. Although prostitutes, I, w- I would say, don't pretend to operate for the public benefit. <laughs> yeah, I think you say in the book that's a, an unfair car- comparison for prostitutes, which uh, yes, which I rather liked. I've just finally, I mean. There's a great deal of kind of panic, uh, and it's something you talk about a bit in the book, but I wouldn't say it's the main theme about the large tech companies. I mean, is there, how worried are you about the likes of Amazon, Facebook, Google? I mean, it just strikes me that, particularly with the case of Facebook, quite a lot of their value is a little bit illusory. And it can be lost very quickly. I mean, is that is that fair? Uh, I, I would have argued that a couple of years ago, um, right. but I think that uh, so I th- how, how worried should we be? First off, I, um, I think we should be extraordinarily worried. Uh, Tim Berners Lee, who's essentially the father of the World Wide Web, you know, he created the standards that allowed for browsers and for what we know today is the the, the web. Essentially, sort of the, the internet existed before, but you know, computers were talking to each other and it wasn't really an accessible system. Tim Berners Lee himself thinks that the internet is dying, and the reason why is that the the internet initially was essentially uh, open, free, and anarchic. And if you had a blog, I'd link to you. If I had a blog, you'd link to me, and then we'd link to third parties, and you ended up up with this very rich ecosystem. The, the problem now, basically, is after 2014, half of all the internet traffic started going through Facebook and Google. And this is essentially the exact opposite of what the internet was intended to be, which is a sort of open and free ecosystem. And uh, you know, if you add in, for example, Amazon with their AWS, which is their sort of cloud service, you know, you're, get, you're getting close to about 70% of all traffic running through three companies. So this is the opposite of what it was meant to be. And the worst part about this is that there's a, the, the biggest arbitrage in history is essentially where you go about creating content and uh, Google and Facebook end up uh, monetizing it and capturing all the value from that. And I go into it in the book. And I think that this is uh, dire for democracy in terms of uh, freedom of press, particularly local press. Uh, it's dire for content creators. And I think that's something that we should all be worried about. All right. Well, Jonathan, thanks very much for joining us. Um, if you do want to read uh, Jonathan's book, you can search for it on DuckDuckGo and uh, buy it on Barnes & Noble or Waterstones rather than any other well-known Don, bookstore. Don's, book here, Don's yeah. uh, bookstore here in London. Yeah. All right. Well, th- Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks very much for joining us, uh, Jonathan. Thank you.